everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Welcome to this special stream. So excited to see everyone here. Make sure you like this stream. Make sure you share this stream. This is a way that we can beat back the tech overlords who try to control us. Just hit a like right now. Also, make sure that you're subscribing and make sure that you have not been unsubscribed because that's a sketchy thing that a lot of people have noted. So just hit subscribe and then hit the bell. That way you'll never miss a stream. And of course, you can become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. You'll get a full interview that I did with Susan Sarandon, extended interviews that I did with Richard Wolf, Vijay Prashad, lots of really great gems there. And I'm about to bring in our special guest for today, Bronco Marchatich. He is a staff writer at Jacobin. He's also the host of the One of 200 podcast. And he's the author of a great book on Joe Biden called Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. So welcome, Branco. Hello. Good to be here. Thank you. Thanks for coming. No worries. So tell us about where you're from. How about that? In New Zealand, you mean? Yeah. It's a very beautiful country that is currently undergoing some some very uh, tough conditions, as the whole world is. I mean, New Zealand is, is affected by the inflation crisis, the global inflation crisis, as every other country is. Um, ours is a, maybe a little worse because uh, New Zealand has been a very expensive place to live for a very long time, uh, way before all this. Um, consumer goods have been very expensive, uh, you know, ordinary food and everything, um, as well as just, just generally any sort of consumer product you can imagine. Um, also petrol. I mean, pe- you know, people in the US are now starting to feel this thing with, with uh, gas prices here. But I mean, petrol in New Zealand has been insanely uh, pricey for a very long time. Uh, and and housing is probably the big one. Uh, New Zealand's had this insane uh, housing market uh, for for you know over well over a decade, um, where houses are just climbing and climbing and climbing. Not, no government is really that inclined to do anything about it because um, a lot of people uh, view the housing market as a way into a secure retirement. Um, so uh, no government wants to sort of. Uh, uh, call for or, or be seen as responsible for for falling house prices because that means people's nest eggs are uh, potentially depleted and and our kind of social security equivalent is not very much so uh, that, that's what's happening in New Zealand it's a beautiful country people should visit it's uh, it's a wonderful place to visit um, uh, unfortunately I think our political leadership there uh, has sort of um, left most uh, ordinary working New Zealanders in the lurch and it's been that way for a while. All right. Well, we'll get to that. We're going to come to that at the end of this stream. And in fact, another reason you're going to want to become Patreon supporters is because if you're watching this now, you're in luck. You're going to get to hear this full stream for free. But if you're watching this later and you want to hear our full chat with Branco, where he debunks some very commonly held myths about New Zealand and its beloved prime minister, then become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, it's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Okay. I want to read a super chat and then we'll go on with the Mayor Pete section of this interview. Brian Frederick says, Yesterday's Man was a great book. You warned us about what a failure Biden would be, but far too people listened. So, 
Yeah, well, thank, I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, yeah, uh, no one, no one uh, read the book in time. I think at least Democratic Party voters didn't read the book in time. Yeah, I think a lot of them will probably not want to read it, even even <laughs> since even uh, late. I suspect you're right. To our great misfortune as a nation and as a world, we're going to get into the very serious topic of shootings and the surveillance state and the squad and Joe Biden, what they're doing about it. But first, let's just start with something a little bit. Uh, you know what? I was going to say lighter, but it's not because it's about babies being hungry and not having formula. And we know that two babies have died, which I feel like didn't get enough coverage. But can you set up what happened with the formula? Then we're going to watch a clip of Mayor Pete responding to this. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's been a baby formula shortage, I guess, for a little while now. I think it's been particularly acute for the last month or so. People sort of in all around the country kind of struggling to figure out where to get some. You know, they're driving to very far away places to try and find any. They're sort of, you know, looking on the internet. Prices are very high. Basically, just generally hard to get a hold of. Obviously, the general supply crunch that's affecting everything is in large part to blame for this. But it was also exacerbated by the fact that there's four companies that basically control the baby formula market in the United States. One of them had to shut down, or, or a major factory for one of the companies had to shut down because of uh, some serious safety issues that led to babies being hospitalized and, and even dying. And that just made the crunch worse for baby formula. The Biden administration has come under fire basically because it didn't really act with urgency through this whole crisis. And it sort of came to a head, I guess, a week or two ago, where people were sort of saying, hey, we need to do something. I mean, there's, there's babies who are going hungry. Mothers are, are trying to feed their kids. They can't do anything. And the Biden administration was sort of dragging its feet, invoking the Defense Production Act, and was sort of generally saying, you know, well, we, we acted on this as quickly as we could. As soon as we found out, we acted on it. I think that's doubtful. But anyway, Pete Buttigieg was on one of the Sunday shows, I believe, basically answering for this and defending the government. Yeah, face the nation. And we have that clip. Let me show that clip right now. And what we can do is we can do like a mystery science theater kind of response to it. I want to ask you a little bit um, on a personal note. Uh, we've been talking about this baby formula shortage nationwide that's been ongoing now for months. You have infants at home. Do you have problems getting hold of formula? Yeah, this is very personal for us. We've got two nine-month-old children's baby formula is a very big part of our lives. And like millions of Americans, we've been rooting around stores, checking online, getting in touch with relatives in other places where they don't have the same shortages to see what they can send over. And we figured it out. We're all set, at least for now. But I think about what that would be like if you're a shift worker with two jobs, maybe you don't have a car. You literally don't have the time or the money to be going from store to store. That's why this is such a serious issue. And that's why it's getting attention at the highest levels, including, of course, direct involvement by the president. Well, and, and this is going to be an issue Congress takes up this week. I know the president said more actions coming, but this has been ongoing for months. There were supply chain issues already. Then you have the issue with this one plant, Abbott, um, whistleblower in September, February, the recall. It's May. Why has it taken so long? And why did the president on Friday seem to say that it was new information to him? He said, if we'd been better mind readers, I guess we could have done something earlier. Well, look, the administration acted from day one after the recall, taking steps like creating more flexibility for the WIC program to help rebalance. And feel free to jump in, because I know that some of these things are things that you disproved in your article on this in Jacobin. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's not much I can add beyond what the uh, the presenter pointed out. I mean, I, I mean, she basically laid out the timeline right there. I mean, it's the idea that 
Pete, of course, is a decent politician. He's just plowing ahead with the pre-range talking point. But, you know, of course, of course, the administration didn't act from day one. Literally, Biden himself basically said he essentially didn't know about it, or at least that was his excuse. So so it's hard to say that you acted from day one. Day one was, was last year. So, yeah. And he just said he would have had to have been a mind reader, which means he didn't. Exactly. Yeah. There are more actions that are underway, including looking at imports. But fundamentally, we are here because a company was not able to guarantee that its plant was safe, and that plant has shut down. But that is the federal government's job as regulators to help ensure as safety regulators, of the Yes, plant. but let's be very clear. This is a capitalist country. The government does not make baby formula, nor should it. Companies make formula. And one of those companies, a company which, by the way, seems to have 40% market share, messed up and is unable to confirm that a plant, a major plant, is safe and free of contamination. So the most important thing to do right now, of course, is to get that plant in Michigan up and running safely. Mm -hmm. And that's the work that's going on between the company and the FDA. It's got to be safe and it's got to be up and running as soon as possible. But this is the difference between a supply chain problem, in other words, a a problem about moving goods around, and a supply problem, which has to do with whether they're being produced in the first place. Now, the administration's also been working with other companies to try to surge their production. That's led to an increase in production, which is helping to compensate. But at the end of the day, this plant needs to come back online safely. So what's your response to Mayor Pete's response to this? Well, I mean, first of all, the government didn't act from day one. So we got that out of the way. It dragged its feet. And even, I mean, even when this became an issue, I think it took about a week for the Biden administration to even invoke the Defense Production Act which uh, it was being pressured by lawmakers and people in the press and outside groups. And yet it took a week for it to actually do anything. Um, You know, I think for me, the the piece I wrote was interesting to me was was, this is basically just a face uh, saving kind of politician answer. He's he's trying to get out of, um, you know, having to blame the government for what what happened, blame the administration for what happened. Um, And he's basically saying, shunting it off to the private sector. He's saying, well, you know, we're in a, in a capitalist society, therefore the government does not really have responsibility here. Um, it's ultimately, uh, uh, you know, a company screwed up and now we sort of have to, to try and get it back under uh, up and running as soon as possible. Now, what's interesting there is, number one, um, I mean, even in a capitalist society, obviously federal regulators, government regulators have a pretty important role in ensuring uh that, that, you know, things run smoothly. We know that that isn't what happened in this case. Uh, I believe that the FDA did a, um, uh, inspection of that particular plant the very month, uh, that the whistleblower complaint, or maybe a month before the whistleblower complaint, uh, uh went to, to the FBA, FDA, they said they didn't find anything or the, the things that they found weren't that serious to really warrant uh, too much action. Uh, secondly, you know, you heard some of the timeline there. So the, the, uh, whistleblower complaint came in, I believe October, the FDA only really acted on it by December. Um, and you know, by, I think the next year, February this year, uh, a couple of babies went to, to the hospital. Um, so the government dropped the ball in a, in a big way here. But then the really interesting thing is the way that basically Pete tries to throw blame off of the administration and, and wash his hands basically of, of this failure, which is to say, uh, well, look, we're in a, we live in a capitalist society. 
therefore, the government shouldn't be producing baby formula. Um, the idea being that he doesn't really elaborate on it, but the implication is that, you know, this is a matter for the private sector. This is a business matter. Government should not be involving itself, uh, producing things in the private sector. And, and by implication, uh, you know, this is just sort of a thing that can sometimes happen in capitalist societies. Uh, that, that's sort of the price, I guess, uh, of the free market to some extent. Um, now, that's a ridiculous answer. Uh, there, there's a v- variety of debates you could have about what exactly, what, what consumer goods, consumer products, uh, governments should be in charge of producing or managing, um, you know, if we had a, a, a socialist system. Um, and, and, you know, people would say maybe baby formula is not one of those. Sure. But Pete's kind of implication is that generally the idea of the, of the government just being involved in a private sector at all is somehow suspect. And the reality is that in capitalist societies all over the world and through history, the government is involved in a whole host of uh, things, uh, you know, uh, on the production side and, and, and in terms of the, the, the sales and everything. Um, you know, in the piece, I gave the example of Denmark. Uh, which is, you know, it's a social democracy, but it's still a, a capitalist country. But Denmark's uh, government is involved in a whole host of things, you know, airports, uh, air travel, uh, selling alcohol, uh, uh, housing. Uh, you know, I could go on and on and on. Um, so, and, and it's not the only one. I mean, in New Zealand, as uh, the other example I give, you know, we, we still have the government involved in, in you know, a, a number of industries, despite all these rounds of privatization that basically sold off things that were once publicly controlled to uh, wealthy private interests. Um, but back in the day, before all that happened, I mean, New Zealand's economy, basically the the, the, the leading kind of, uh, some of the leading industrial sectors were were basically almost entirely public uh, publicly owned. Um, and it was only uh, through the neoliberal revolution in the 1980s, which in New Zealand was way, you know, it, it was a, a, such a speed and ferocity that it was sort of outstripped anything that was even done in the US or, or the UK. Um, you saw it from a very kind of publicly uh, controlled economy and society to, to suddenly a very deregulated one. Um, but it was still a capitalist society before then. So the idea that, you know, oh, well, you know, we can't do anything here or, or you know, this is this is sort of this was inevitable because the government shouldn't be uh, involved in, in, in private industry is, is pretty ridiculous. Um, and in fact, there's a very good reason why governments do tend to uh, put certain uh, resources, certain goods uh, under public control, because the idea is that some things are so important, they should not be left to the, to the whims of the free market and to, to sort of, you know, the, the, the uh, wishes of people whose main goal is just to make money, not actually produce for the public good, which is what the government is meant to do. So you take that out of the, you, you decommodify it, you take it out of the market, you you make it just a public good that isn't there to make a profit, but just there to, you know, supply people with the things that they need to live. That's that's the basic um, idea. Um, now again, with a baby formula, should be the thing uh, uh, that the government produces. That's a whole other debate. But but you know, the idea that the government shouldn't be involved. Um, in, in uh, things that the private sector does now, uh, I think is, is pretty ridiculous, pretty spurious. Shifting gears a little bit, you have two pieces that are kind of related that you write at Jacobin. One was written before the Texas shooting. Obviously, it was called The Buffalo Attack as a reminder that mass surveillance doesn't protect us. We were told we had to sacrifice privacy for security and accept the most radical surveillance state in human history. Yet time and again, mass surveillance proves ineffective for preventing attacks. 
And then you have another piece, progressives need to resist the domestic war on terror. The squad and other progressives voted this week to ramp up the war on terror here at home. Right now, they might find it politically convenient to prop up draconian national security measures, but at some point, they're going to have to take a stand. So can you talk to us about the current surveillance, the recent vote that was held related to surveillance, and how this doesn't seem to work in protecting us from domestic terrorism? Sure. I mean, I wrote a piece back in 2016 when the Pulse nightclub shooting happened. Um, I think I was in DC at the time and, you know, I heard about it. And, and at the time, the government surveillance debate uh, was still kind of more of a live issue because we weren't that far removed from, from the Snowden revelations and everything. Uh, and it struck me how, the, first of all, I believe that the Pulse nightclub shooter was actually known to, uh, to, to, the, to the feds before he did this thing. He was sort of on their radar, number one. And that was a, a uh, very common trend among a whole bunch of, of terrorists or, you know, whatever, attackers uh, that, that over the years that they were actually known to law enforcement beforehand and yet somehow still got away uh, uh, to do this, these horrific crimes. Um, that was number one. And I thought also, I mean, you know, the Snowden revelations told us about this massive, vast surveillance state that exists in the United States. Basically, you know, the NSA is um, sweeping up everything uh, that we do on the internet almost, um, sweeping it up and storing it. Um, meanwhile, you know, it's not just the NSA. Uh, most recently, we found out that, that uh, the CIA has its own kind of warrantless domestic spying program, which we don't know the details of yet. This is a story that kind of came right uh, right before the, the war in Ukraine. Um, and I think it sort of got lost in that in that um, news cycle. But uh, basically, you know, the CIA is doing domestic spying um, and, and potentially violating uh, U.S. laws doing it. Uh, we know the FBI taps those same NSA databases or can tap those. And it has a whole bunch of other databases that it uses to, uh, to, you know, if it wants to, to surveil someone, spy on someone. Um, you can go through private data brokers uh, that collect all, some of the, all the information that we, you know, put out there on the internet unwittingly. Um, the the, the uh, DHS ICE, you know, uh, uh, ICE, it turns out, there was a, a big report that came out a couple of weeks ago saying basically if you look at the amount of data that, that ICE is drawing on and, and, and using, uh, they're basically a domestic spy agency at that point. They, at this point, they have information on almost every adult in the United States, whether undocumented, documented, citizen, resident, immigrant, whatever. Um, so there's we, we're living in probably the most extreme surveillance state that's ever existed uh, in human history, and yet. Uh, these attacks keep happening. And these attacks, remember, are the, are the exact thing that all of these powers and, and, and dragnets are meant to prevent. That's the idea. Um, and yet they keep happening. And so when this Laos attack happened, you know, I was reading about it and the guy, first of all, once again, was known to... Buffalo or Texas, you're talking about? Buffalo. The guy was known to, to law enforcement beforehand. Not latest attack, sadly. No, not the latest attack. Even there, good God, I mean, a week after that one, we, we hit the same thing, and now, now it's even more horrific than the other one. But So this guy in Buffalo was known to people, to law enforcement. He 
posted his manifesto on Google Docs, apparently, two days before he had committed this attack. I mean, theoretically, he should be someone that this huge national security state that, that exists and that costs U.S. taxpayers ungodly amounts of money every year should, should be there to stop. And yet, once again, it happens. And so the big question is, what is the point of this very extreme, massive national security infrastructure that, that exists in the United States? And second of all, does it help? Does it actually do what it's meant to do? And then thirdly, is what it's meant to do, at least what we're told publicly, what the real reason for it existing, is that really what it's used for? Or is there some other, other purpose? I'm happy to <laughs> answer the questions that I've just posed to myself, if you want. But Yes, please. Well, I mean, you know, what people in the NSA and even in, in ICE, apparently, have kind of complained about the fact that there's so much information coming in because this, this is so vast, so, so massive. They're swimming in so much data. It's actually impossible to make sense of it all. Um, you know, the, part of the Snowden revelations was always NSA contractors talking about how uh, there's just too much data. And uh, how do you kind of sift through and find the stuff that's actually relevant and interesting? Because when you're collecting information on everything that everyone is doing in their private moments, that's a lot of information. Um, it, it, it makes it very difficult to actually detect, you know, what's what's interesting, what's relevant, what's what's alarming, and what's just sort of you know people's I don't know browsing habits or call habits. Um, ICE apparently, according to this report that came out a couple of weeks ago, um, is is so inundated with information about Americans and you know about their habits and where they live and all this other kind of stuff that they actually, I think the third largest contractor that they contract with is uh, a company that helps them actually make sense of all the data. Um, and they have several other contractors that they work with to try and uh, help them make sense of data. So, so they also have the same problem. So given that, I mean, I think this is part of the reason why it's difficult to actually detect this stuff because there's just too much information coming in. Now, but what is this stuff actually useful for? It's not useful if you want to detect a lone wolf attack coming out of nowhere. However, what it is useful for is if you know someone and you, and you want to target them and you want to find out what they're doing in their private lives and their personal lives, you know, in their free time, what were they, what are their habits like? What, 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 what is, uh, their, their private behavior tell us about, you know, them, uh, maybe their psychological state or, or who they are. Well, then that's very useful. Um, uh, because, you know, for instance, uh, uh, just to give two examples that I cite in the piece, uh, the FBI back in the 1960s, not huge fans of Martin Luther King. And I'm sure it's not a surprise to anyone uh, watching this live stream. Uh, they wanted to uh, find something to, to damage his reputation with, to, to actually potentially push him into killing himself. Uh, you know, famously, the, the, the Bureau sent... Martin Luther King, a letter basically saying, you know, we 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 know about your infidelity, and you know, you should you should just kill yourself before it comes out. Um, another example when Daniel Ellsberg, a very famous whistleblower, uh, leaked the Pentagon Papers, you know, probably one of the most storied uh, acts of whistleblowing in, in U.S. history uh, to try and end the the Vietnam War. Nixon wanted to discredit him, uh, and so he had people break into uh, his psychiatrist's office to find, again, damaging information that they could use against them. Now, in both of those cases, imagine if the FBI or Nixon or, or a Nixonian-style uh, president had the kind of powers and, and um, 
and and databases uh, that the current government does, you know, where you can see people's browsing habits, their emails, their phone calls. Imagine what you could do with that. Uh, I think that is really what this kind of surveillance state, where it's most useful. If you want to go after political dissidents uh, or, or, you know, whistleblowers or uh, anti-war activists or anti-police brutality activists, if you want to, you know, discredit them or, you know, find something that you can prosecute them with, what have you, that's where it's most useful because suddenly you can pull up a massive dossier, basically, on, on what they're doing in their most private moments and use it against them, um, you know, which is not what, certainly what, what we were told, uh, you know, we were basically not really asked, but just sort of said, uh, hey, we, you have to give up your privacy, essentially, and trust us that we will use this responsibly. They didn't say and it's so that we can go after, uh, you know, left-wing activists and, uh, you know, whistleblowers. They said it was to stop people from being killed. Um, but in fact, people are still being killed. And, and just one final thing, I mean, compare, for instance, the way that this guy who, who in, in Buffalo, who was, again, known to law enforcement beforehand, who posted his manifesto on um, Google Docs just a couple of days before he killed all those people. Uh, compare that, how he's you know managed to slip under the radar with when um, activists are planning to protest at one of the uh, two parties' national conventions you know, they organize an event on Facebook or posting on Facebook. And lo and behold, you know, sometimes a few hours later, the FBI is knocking at their door, asking them, um, hey, what, what are you going to do this weekend? Maybe you should stay home. So, uh, you know, I mean, one problem is the massive amount of data that, that these people are, that these agencies are collecting. But I think the other problem is that clearly um, for all the talk of, you know, far-right terrorism and white supremacist terrorism is going to be the focus of these new kind of anti-terror measures, um, it seems like these agencies are still basically targeting, um, or, or they're still mostly kind of obsessed with, you know, uh, uh, left-wing protesters, anti-police brutality uh, activists, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. And I'm going to ask you in a second about what the recent vote was, but what could they and should they have done about this individual, like the shooter in Buffalo, for instance? Well, I mean, I think with a lot of the stuff, you've got to go to the root causes. I think a reactive policy is not going to work. I mean, we know that. We, we know that with crime generally. We know that with uh, terrorism, you know, the, the many instances of kind of Islamic extremist terrorism that, that happened beforehand. And, and I think we generally understand that with those cases that, you know, just sort of increasing national security powers or harsher punishments, more police, more jails, so on and so forth, doesn't really solve the problem because the problem is something underlying this violence. I think in, in the case of these shootings, I mean, the very obvious thing is is guns. There needs to be gun control in the United States. Um, that, that sounds like a really simple uh, uh, solution because I think people have been saying it for, for decades, um, but it really is... The, the, the most obvious thing that, that needs to, you need to go after. I mean, it's basic common sense. If someone is going to attack a crowd of people in a street or a hall, how, how much more damage are they going to do with, is it, are they going to do more damage with, with a knife? Or are they going to do it with an assault rifle that can be shot at a distance and, um, you know, pump out round after round after round, you know, with very minimal effort, you know, over, over the course of seconds. I mean, clearly it's it's the assault rifle. Um, doesn't mean that you're going to get rid of violence. You're still going to get, you know, crazy people or what have you, whatever term you want to use, 
violent people, uh, unhinged people, racist people uh, who maybe want to do uh, do violence. You'll still get that, but you will at least limit the amount of damage that they can uh, they can actually do. Um, I think that's one thing. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, that's what that's what it seems like anyway. Um, the other thing is that uh, uh, you need to look at what is it that's actually driving people towards this kind of violence. So, you know, I mean, I, I think it's not necessarily going to be the same thing for every single person, but clearly there is there is some some sort of underlying factor or factors that are driving uh, people. Uh, in this case, you know, I mean, these were kind of, these were kids. These were, they were ba- barely out of. Uh, uh, well, actually, the Texas uh, shooter was. Was in school, wasn't he? 18, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what is it that's driving these kids and, and just people in general towards this kind of violence? Um, I don't know the answer to that, but that's the kind of question that needs to be asked. And then you need to look at attacking the the causes of that rather than, you know, I'm sure it's a satisfying politician thing to increase the number of police and, you know, make harsher punishments or what have you. But I don't know if that's really going to actually get rid of why it is that there's just this constant stream of insane violence that is happening in the United States. Yeah, and we'll talk more about that later in the stream. But can you tell people about the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act of 2022 and what it is and why you have some reservations about it? Sure. I mean, like a lot of the kind of domestic war and terror legislation uh, that's been passed under Biden or has been proposed under Biden, it's it's... Not the Patriot Act. It's not that bad. Um, it's it's it certainly could have been worse. In this case, the bill basically creates um, domestic terrorism officers at several uh, different um, government departments, basically, um, as well as you know, it, it mandates that, that there's reports about uh, collecting instances of right wing terrorism and and uh, or, or rather all terrorism, but then you know, sort of. Uh, mandates creating a, a task force to deal with the, the worst kind of terrorism um, uh, based on the the amount of, of attacks that are collected uh, as well as there's there's one provision that is actually um, pretty decent which is uh, it, it, it um, uh, mandates a uh, kind of a, an, a, an examination or an analysis investigation whatever of uh, white supremacist infiltration of um, uh, federal law enforcement and the armed forces, and that that is a very serious issue, and that should be should be done. Unfortunately, the the bill is kind of, from my reading, pretty toothless. I mean, it's it, it talks mostly about here's how you co- will compile the report about the white supremacist infiltration, and then beyond that, it doesn't really mandate anything. Um, you know, it gets pretty pretty vague after that. Um, the reason I have reservations is because this doesn't really escalate things that much. My worry is that. Number one, all of these things are being done incrementally. Um, you know, I mean, one major example was the way that the Capitol Police have been sort of expanded into this nationwide terrorist fighting force. Um, they now have officers in California, and I believe, um, was it Florida, maybe? Um, check that. <laughs> Uh, the, the, don't, don't take my word for that. I, I, I probably have those wrong. But it's been expanded into a couple more states. You know, the Capitol Police, they're a... They call the Capitol Police for a reason. They're a, a law enforcement arm that is meant to uh, only only uh, guard the, the U.S. Capitol. Um, uh, but now they're being expanded, and the, and the worrying thing about that is that um, they are immune to to FOIAs. They they can't be FOIAed, which is Freedom of Information Act. Just so everyone knows. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you know, God knows if they 
we don't know what they're doing and we potentially can't even really find out because the public is, is kind of uh, blocked from, from you know, making them accountable. Um, that, that was a previous bill, but nonetheless, I think it shows you the way that just bit by bit, these things are kind of intensifying. And, uh, you know, my second worry is that, okay, you know, Buffalo led to this Domestic Terrorism Pre- Prevention Act wasn't that bad. However, there's going to be more, unfortunately, I mean, I hate to say it, but there's going to be more attacks, more tragedies like this, more violence. Um, and the more that this stuff happens, the more pressure there is on politicians to, to sort of do something. When I, when I say do something, you know, what they'll do is, is kind of uh, advance this domestic war and terror rather than doing what I was saying, which is to Go after the root causes and to limit uh, the the, the uh, amount of guns there are out there. Um, and I'm dismayed by the fact that that I understand the political pressures that are on progressive lawmakers. You know, nobody wants to go on a, an attack ad. You know, they voted against uh, protecting Americans from from white supremacists or something. You know, uh, it's a, it's an attack ad waiting to be made. However, um, at some point, I think they, they are going to have to take a stand and, and vote against some of the stuff and, and try to and actually explain, have a conversation with the public, tell them why, uh, you know, why it's dangerous and, and why it's also ineffective. Um, you know, I, I hope I made a pretty good case for, for both of those things in my piece, but I think that that's the conversation that, that some of these progressive lawmakers need to start having with, uh, with their constituents. Because remember, the United States is a, is a two-party uh, democracy, as flawed as it is, and uh, power changes pretty regularly. Uh, it may well change in, in uh, this coming November, um, and it may well change in 2024 as well. Uh, if Trump or Ron DeSantis wins or whatever other Republican, are people who voted for this stuff really going to be comfortable uh, handing over this kind of uh, war and terror, domestic war and terror uh, infrastructure over to one of these uh, right-wing politicians? I, I very much doubt it. I mean, remember, remember what happened through 2020 when Trump basically used the DHS uh, as a kind of private army that he was sending against anti-police brutality protesters. Department of Homeland Security, yeah. Yeah. And so, Squad, I hope you're watching. Squad, take into account what Bronco's written. We'll put a link to it. And Brian Frederick writes, like more military aid to Ukraine, only Republicans in Congress were willing to stand up against this domestic terrorism bill. The left is silent. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a kind of genuine non-interventionist section of the Republican Party that really is kind of genuine about this. I think also some of these Republicans, are, you know, I mean, if it was their president, I don't think they would be. Like, if it was Trump who was sending military aid to Ukraine, I don't think that they would be opposing it quite as much. And, and by the way, I should also note that a lot of these Republicans who voted against some of their military aid are at the same time saber-rattling and calling for the exact same thing to be sent to, to Taiwan. So, you know, I mean, if you have an actual principle or sort of practical objection to why some of this stuff is concerning, why we should maybe take a different tack to relations with China or relations with Russia, I mean, you should consistently apply it to both those countries. It doesn't make sense to say we shouldn't do that with Russia, but we should definitely do it with China, a, a massive economically important country that also happens to have nuclear weapons. I mean, yes, there's a lot of opportunism and cynical political posturing. Some people are pushing back because you said we live in a democracy. People are saying there's no dem- representative democracy in the U.S. Someone says the U.S. is a failed oligarchy. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's an oligarchy. But I mean, what I'm saying is that it's a country where it's not it's not a one party state. I mean, you could say that that because the two parties are you know interchangeable that it kind of is. But my point is that 
for most people, it's a two, this is a two-party system where they get to vote every you know, two to four years for one of those parties. And so if you're a, a Democrat and you believe in voting in Democrats and you're looking at some of this domestic terror stuff and you think, well, you know, look, I mean, if it, I could see why this is dangerous, but I trust Joe Biden. I trust the Democrats to use it responsibly. I trust them not to go after the wrong people. And so therefore, I, I'm fine with it. Well, you have to factor in the fact that in two years, four years time, there's going to be a whole different set of people running the show who are going to have access to the same powers and the same kind of infrastructure. And you're probably not going to like what they do with it uh, because they're not going to go after, you know, I don't think far-right terrorists. And actually, by the way, the Biden administration already is not really exclusively going after the far-right. I mean, the domestic terrorism strategy that Biden released last year explicitly said, you know, we make no distinction on political ideology. Extremists come from a wide variety of backgrounds, including animal rights, environmentalism, anarchism, anti-capitalism. Who will protect us from animal rights people, yeah. <laughs> yes, the worst monsters in human history, of course. But, you know, so they're quite explicitly saying we're going to go after extremists of any kind. I should also add that in practical terms, I mean, the Biden administration has tried to get terrorism enhancement for a harsher prosecution to prosecute protesters as terrorists for some of the George Floyd protesters. We saw the arrest and imprisonment of Daniel Baker in Florida. He was an anarchist who was spooked by what he saw on January 6th, 2020, uh, 2021, sorry, and did a bunch of posts, sent out a flyer saying, you know, we have to take up arms. We have to defend the Tallahassee state capitol from, you know, when there's a march of, of kind of, you know, far right people trying to take it. And he was arrested by the FBI. They raided his house. They raided his elderly blind landlady's place too. She didn't know what the hell was going on. And they put him in jail basically for, for posting. He didn't do anything. He just said a bunch of things. So we're already seeing how this can very easily and is easily being turned on the people who are the exact opposite ideology as the kind of the targets that were given in the, in the public facing rhetoric by the Biden administration and by the FBI and other agencies. Also, you just tweeted some breaking news about Biden and student debt. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.